Take your Bibles this morning and open up to Revelation chapter 20. We continue looking um, in a very short passage in many ways for a thousand years. Um, but I do think part of that, as we looked at last week, is because there actually is quite a bit of information on the millennial reign throughout the Old Testament. So if you are familiar with your major prophets, particularly Isaiah and Ezekiel, um, you can fill in a lot of blanks. And I think John even somewhat assumes that, and he kind of glosses over that glorious reign and the first resurrection, which was exciting, because as part of the church, we take place in that. Um, but you do not want to take place in this second part uh, when Satan is released and what we'll see as the second death. So open with me, look with me, Revelation 20. We'll go ahead and read verses 7 through the end of our chapter. John continues, verse 7, And when the thousand years are finished, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved and the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sits upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Father, we come this morning uh, just being humbled and even uh, sobered by the realities of eternity, um, both rejoicing in the reality of an eternity spent with you, Lord, where Christ will be reigning not just with the authority he has even in heaven now, but in reality from a throne as we saw in the millennial reign from David's throne in Jerusalem, but even towards the end of this as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earths in the coming week. But we're humbled by the reality that that same language of forever and ever, of eternity, is applicable not only towards enjoyment forever with you, but judgment and punishment apart from you. Help us see the reality of these things, Lord, to look for a moment. Let it sober our hearts and our minds in the way that we live, the way that we speak, and the way we interact with a a lost world. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Two weeks ago, it was that we looked at the glorious return of Christ. He's on the white horse with the sword, and he's coming back, and he is conquering And I didn't want to do something too cheesy, because it's always tempting with titles, but I really did, especially after talking with someone afterwards, I really did want to title that sermon, 
when dad gets home. Because that's just the visual I have when dad gets home. Because what that symbolizes is the reality that I knew growing up there was a certain authority that dad had. And dad would go to work or dad would be gone. And it was a severe threat that if mom said, wait till dad gets home. Because when dad gets home, it was the promise there will be justice. And mom was always far more merciful. And so you really were going, no, I don't want that. Whatever you want, mom, I'll, I'll do it. I can remember vividly probably at uh, the age of seven. And it was actually Sunday. It was a Sunday morning. It was Sunday school. And my dad was out preaching somewhere else. And I don't know what got into my foolish, immature head. But I remember sitting in a Sunday school classroom with Shane Peterson, Mr. Peterson. And he was my teacher. And we're sitting there. And I don't know. I just was acting depraved and rebellious, I guess. And um, he just looked at me like, normally you're really good in Sunday school. I'm sure you Sunday school teachers can identify with this. And I was. I normally listened. I normally obeyed. But for whatever reason, I was off the walls that day. And I don't think you could just blame sugar or things. I, you know, my own sinner self. And I just remember looking at him and saying, my dad's not here. You can't do anything because dad was out preaching at a different church. And he just let it kind of happen. You could see he was a little baffled by my attitude. And I just thought that was the slam dunk. Dad's not here. He can't touch me. Well, I didn't think, you know, too far ahead that dad would come home later that day. And I remember that same thing with mom. It was like, well, when your dad gets home, he's going to talk to you. And then it was like that moment of, I thought I had gotten away with something and the dread just filled. And I said, "Uh uh-oh, it's coming now when dad gets home. I went from arrogant and kind of thinking I can get away with something to realizing that gut-wrenching feeling, you know, when you are caught, the, the hand is in the cookie jar, and you just thought there's no consequence to sin, and then all of a sudden you thought, uh-oh, I am caught red-handed. Kind of acts as a smelling salt. You think of smelling salts. Um, if someone is unconscious, and you kind of think of it, they put the smelling salts, and you wake up, or uh, someone that's kind of just out of it, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're awake, and reality kind of sets back in. When you get to chapter 20, it, it is the reality of this second death that really should be sobering. And you don't want to wait until it happens in the future to be sobered by it or to be, in a real good sense, scared of it, afraid, because there is death and judgment and accountability that you may not experience today or tomorrow or in the next two years, the next five or ten years, but this is the promise of his return. Just as sure as Christ will return and reign, it's just as sure that Christ will return and he will judge. There's a way that life can happen. I just was on a uh, trip to Kansas City this week um, with the boys, and we were driving down, and you know how you kind of get zoned out, and you're going, I better pay attention. But driving home a little bit late, and everything kind of gets blurry, and before you know it, you've, you've gone 100 miles. You're going, oh, I guess I don't really remember the last 100 miles. I'm doing, you know, being safe and all. And you kind of do that with life, where you just kind of get in literal cruise control. It's this kind of, hopefully, sermon, this kind of passage that kind of wakes you up and goes, oh, there are real things going on in this world. There isn't just the physical. It isn't just getting up and going to work and coming home. But there is heaven and hell. There's life and death. And hopefully, we don't have to wait until we see that experientially as much as learning from reading it here and seeing what the promises of God are, both for salvation and for judgment. And so as we look at Revelation chapter 20, we see this is the last one, really, I could say, where you get a little bit going, man, again, we're going to talk about uh, judgment and wrath and kind of, you could say, the fulfillment, finally, of this last judgment of God. 
before we move into the new heavens and the new earth. But this is Jesus here in these verses executing final judgment on Satan, his followers, and death itself. Because where we were left last week as you went through the first six verses of this millennial reign, we saw Satan is removed, he's bound, and Christ reigns for a thousand years, and, and the saints are resurrected and reigning with him. You're, you're kind of left with wondering if the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, why is Satan bound? And there seems to be this purpose for the very end. And maybe even wondering if you, you sit back and go, is God harsh? Is he somehow unjust? Is he somehow impatient? And yet after a thousand years, you could say, in the clink, Satan doesn't change. He doesn't learn. He, he, there's no rehab here for him. He's just as angry and his hatred towards God as the end. And he's going to rally together. And this is kind of shocking if you really think about 789. He's going to gather enough people that the, the imagery, the metaphor is the, the sand on the seashore. That's how many people are going to line up in a perfect world behind Satan to go against God. It's mind-blowing. Both what Satan's about to do and that humanity even in the millennial reign of Christ, is going to do this. Our uh, statement of faith, if you were to look on our website or if you were to look at a copy of it, says this reality, and it comes from passages like this, but I just thought it was just interesting in a kind of succinct way, this idea of what we teach. Well, we teach the bodily resurrection, if you look at future and our statement of faith. We teach the bodily resurrection of all men, the saved to eternal and the unsaved to judgment and everlasting punishments. That is, there is a resurrection for both. We saw a first resurrection and a second resurrection. We also teach that the souls of the unsaved to death are kept under punishment until the second resurrection, which is in our passage this morning, when the soul and the resurrection body will be united and they shall then appear at the great white throne judgment and shall be cast into hell the lake of fire which is not just mentioned here, but you could look at other places such as Matthew 25. Cut off from the life of God, it says, forever. As I said, this is a very sobering reality, but you cannot run from this is what the scriptures teach. In fact, even as you look at the extent of verse 10, that they're tormented day and night forever and ever. It's the kind of phrase you see over and over again in Revelation, and you want it to apply to you, even you go to Revelation 22, that we reign with him forever and ever. You can't run from the reality of, and I think even if you look at the theology of it, the, what is a punishment against an infinite and eternal God, that it would be an eternal punishment, makes sense. But the same format that's forever and ever is correspondingly, but we understand and we want and we believe that we're with Christ forever and ever as well. And so I think you can't run from this reality. It's just true and no reason that you can say you, you, you love it in that sense, but it is exactly what God's going to do. And it will, as we've seen over and over again in Revelation, it will be just. And so Jesus will execute final judgment. And it's going to be not much of a battle here either, but it is a war, it says, where they will be consumed. And then, not just physically, but then judged with the second resurrection for eternity and not only his followers, but we'll see even death, Hades itself is thrown into the lake of fire, which is good news because ultimately then there will be no death. 
We're going to look at it a couple different ways here. Just the first few verses here, 7 through 10. We're going to see how this plays out in history with these two events. And the first one is marked by the release of Satan. And this event is the final deception. The final deception. It says in verse 7 that when the thousand years are finished... As I said, I think part of the reason it's so brief and succinct is that you have a lot more in the Old Testament talking about this period of time where Christ is reigning from Jerusalem. And even you're going to see Jerusalem mentioned um, when it talks about they're going to come against uh, the beloved city. That's reference to Jerusalem. Uh, Satan will be released from his prison. So he's in that pit, which we've seen referenced as well many times. And he is in prison and He will come out, and the first thing he does is he doesn't change his way. He deceives the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog, Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And I want you to understand that those who enter the millennium, so we saw the first resurrection, right? We saw the church. We saw uh, the Old Testament saints. But there were living human beings who are believers at that point, because everyone else is judged at the end of the tribulation, who enter into this thousand year reign and you can see death in Hades has not been destroyed yet and those who have not had resurrected bodies are going to live and they may live for a very long time it may be a pre-flood where you start to see the hundreds and hundreds and you know six seven hundred year old person but it is to say there will be death in the millennium but there's something else which is yes they're believers and you go where are the unbelievers It would seem that that depravity of humanity is passed on as they have children in the millennium. And so much so that that depravity is expressed in that Satan is released at the end. And there's enough people that can be described here as the sand of the seashore that go against and create war against the God in heaven. The purpose of that sheep and goat judgment recorded in Matthew 25 is that only the, the sheep go in the millennium. But again, the children... It would seem are probably what make up this. At somewhere generationally, they still have that choice to follow or not follow. And many, it would seem, are going to choose not to follow Christ. Even despite all the perfection that goes on in this kingdom. They're going to rebel. And you go, how could that happen? And I would just at least submit to you that how in the world in Genesis chapter 3 or how in the world in, in heaven does Satan fall? Other than it seems that pride that goes, that he wants to, he'd rather, even if he is ultimately destroyed or defeated, he'd rather be like God. And that seems to be a deceptive lie that even comes here towards the end. Maybe that's the exact lie in one form or another that Satan deceives. We're not given kind of the exact way that he deceives the nations. Other than when he is released, he provides that kind of supernatural leadership to gather them together. And it's described from the four corners of the earth. That is to say, they're everywhere. Which is also amazing. They're everywhere. He gathers them. And this Gog and Magog, uh, uh, probably more uh, symbolic of what Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel uh, 38-39. It's the same invasion force described there that comes from the north that assaults Israel in the first half of the tribulation. In the same way God defeats them there, he's going to defeat them here. How does he defeat them? Look at verse 9. He says, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, Jerusalem, and the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. So just about as succinctly as uh, you see a a thousand years kind of condensed, same thing here. You see this great war, this massive uh, people that march on the beloved city, and it ends 
just this swift with one little sentence. In essence, the fire came down and it devoured them. They are judged. But just physically, you could say here. Spiritually speaking, there is, this is kind of, if you die, right? We think of a first death. This is a second death that will come towards the great white throne judgment. But it, before it comes to humanity, who is judged, verse 10, it's the devil who is judged. So all the way from his fall to this period, he's, I'm sure, suffering, he's chained and all those things, but he is not yet fully judged. This is final judgment for the final deception that he goes about. And it's the devil, it says, verse 10, who deceived them, who was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. So he's cast in there with whom the beast and the false prophet also. And they are tormented day and night forever. This reality of what is going on. It tells us um, Satan who enters the world and the scene on the garden now exits the world by being cast into this fire. And I think it means what it says, which is that it's forever and ever, because I also think then you have to take the same as God's promises us that we will reign with him forever. And so you see that as a final deception. I'll just say it's amazing if you were wondering about human beings, people, and their depravity. I don't know if there's any more judgment against humanity than 7, 8, 9, and 10, that in a millennial kingdom where the lion and the lamb lay down together and there is peace, that they would still cause a kind of rebellion to go against God as it's kind of you see here. I granted it's deception. They are deceived by the great deceiver, but still it's unbelievable what it is seen doing. But why is this happening? Why does any of it happen? You go to glorify the Lord, but it seems to be this will be the final nail in the coffin to say, look, this is how it had to happen, and it was just. And if people do not believe the gospel, if they aren't given a new heart, a new nature, they will continue on this path of rebellion. And there's none of that that is going to happen. Therefore, God is going to deal with it. None of that's going to happen in the future kingdom. Therefore, God is going to deal with it forever. And first cast Satan in. And then we're going to see the second half here. The other event that is going to happen is not only the deception of Satan, but a final judgment on people. It's described in verse 11 here. The number two is the final judgment as the great white throne judgment. In a way that John has said over and over again, then I saw, he says, then I saw a great white throne. So you kind of see this, there's a little bit of a movement here. Uh, and on him who sits upon it, and we were used to seeing God the Father sitting on the throne in heaven. Although perhaps it is God the Father. And of course, I'm not going to split Trinitarian hairs here. Um, but you do know from John 5.22 that Jesus says, Not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And so there's some way in which I think it's delegated to the Son. Or even this is where he sees the Son. A different throne than what we've seen throughout Revelation, it would appear. Even in its description that it is great, it is large, and it is white, it is pure. Kind of the purity of the one who sits upon it. From whose, it goes on, it says, whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. The same idea that uh, where are they going to go? It seems they, they're, they're gone. If you want to look at the best argument for a, a kind of total destruction of, and a, and a total remake of a new heavens and earth in chapter 21 versus a renewal, it's probably one of the better places to look and, and kind of see that that seems to be an implication here. At least they, they flee away and all that's left is 
this judgment that takes place. And of that judgment, what has to happen first is, if it's going to be a final judgment, they need final bodies. Ones that don't die, which are eternal, which reflect the way that God made us in his image with eternal souls. And so, you see that very thing in verse 12, that he saw the dead, the great, the small. That is, everyone in between. Standing before the throne. It's quite the the picture, as far as the eye could see. And there's this idea of a book. So, we, we have our scripture here this morning, but think of a book that has everything written in your entire life. It is opened. And so the books are open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And so they're going to look and see, okay, this is your whole life. Kind of you think of it as a separate book. And, and here's another book, the book of life. And is your name written in this book of life, which is simply short for what Revelation calls the Lamb's book of life. And the dead are going to be judged, it says, from the things which were written in the books According to their deeds, which kind of gives you what's in that book. It seems to be everything you've ever done in your life, whether it's thought, action, deed. And they're going to be judged. And it goes on that, where are they going to come from? And I think this is simply a way of saying everywhere. I don't care if you died at sea or you died on, you're buried in the earth. Because that's kind of the two choices, as you can think, water or, or land. It's whether you were at the sea, the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were... In it, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And I think death and Hades there are probably a reference more towards uh, the reality of death and kind of the realm of the dead. But even just yet, you are you die, you're you're buried, and gives it up. And then he goes on to say, then death and Hades. So both the realm and the reality of death is thrown into the lake of fire, which is good news because it is gone forever. And it is ever, which he describes here as the second death, which we talked about. First resurrection versus second resurrection. This is not only a second death, but it's the second resurrection of which then they are condemned to a second death of the lake fire. And if anyone's name, because this is the key, right? This is what matters most. Not so much what is found in that book of your life, but the question of is your name not only there, but is your name, most importantly, is it in the book of the Lamb's book of life? And if your name's not found there, there's only one name upon which you can be saved in heaven and earth. If it's not there, then you're thrown into the lake of fire. This is absolutely final judgment. There's nowhere to hide. And I think that idea of this great white throne, this omniscience, everyone is there. You can't run. You can't hide. You think of from the very beginning... The very first sin in the garden, what is the propensity? What is the reaction? What is the nature for Adam and Eve? It says they hid. And I can't imagine a place in time anywhere where from a human perspective, you want to run and you want to hide, you want to cover. And this is the moment in time where you can run and hide in this life, but you cannot run and hide if your name is not in the book of life and you have not been covered by the sacrifice of Christ. You cannot hide from this Judgment. It's just the reality. It is there. Going back to verse 12, some people call this the, the courtroom of God. And the picture of a courtroom of a, a judge opening and trying to examine the documents. This is a place where you, there's no advocate advocating. It's just simply there is a prosecutor. That's all that is present here because there is going to be only judgment that comes. 
It's a scary reality. Makes sense. If God is who he says he is and he is omniscient and he is all-knowing and he knows everything, then he's able to give an account for everything in our lives. You may know that I'm imperfect, which doesn't take long, but you don't know how imperfect, but God does. Every thought upon which I don't act upon that is wicked and evil, he knows that. Again, I can show up places that are public and I can act pretty nice and pretty reserved, but it's no comfort when it comes to God being a judge here because he sees everything. Sinner's deeds are going to be measured against God's perfect and holy standard. The reality of that Romans goes over and over again, but think of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's the reality of God's holiness, his perfection. It demands some payment. Someone's got to pay for the wickedness, for a person's sin. We believe and teach that it is Christ, it's his death, it's his death as a substitute for our sin that covers that. But those who reject his death, who don't believe who reject that, they're going to have to pay the penalty. And it is not just, as we've seen, a one-time penalty or something you pay for uh, 50 years or 100 years or 5 years. But it is an eternal penalty for violating God's eternal law. And the punishment is eternal, we'll see here, destruction in the lake of fire or as we have the more common vernacular of hell. It's a good question to ask this morning. If, if your book or if your life was a book, what would it say? Could we read it this morning? I think everyone's like, no. <laughs> take the highlights. You can take the Facebook reel. You can take the Instagram kind of posts. But you, I don't want everything read. We tend to take all those imperfections and minimize them, even if they are still somewhat present and make edits. I even think of a book and um, one of the nice things before you publish a book is you can make edits. You can make changes. There's no way to go back and edit yesterday. It's kind of the way we, which we live, linear, moving forward. Sometimes I wish I could go out and edit some things, but that's just not how it works. It's a scary thing that God's judgment is absolutely accurate for each and every person. But John says, of course, there isn't just that book. And that's kind of the picture here. And you could go look in this phrase is used multiple times in Revelation. But there's not only a book of your judgment and your deeds, but there is this second book, which is the more important side of things. Because no matter what's written in that first book of those deeds and actions, because everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, the question is, has those, because everyone's a sinner, have those sins been paid for? And is their name found in this book of life? books recorded, all those who put their faith in Christ, who is the Lamb, the worthy one we saw, Revelation 5, Revelation 6. It's all those who have agreed with God, they were sinners in desperate need of a Savior. All those who understood and believed that he died, took the punishment of sin upon himself and died and was buried in their place, rose again three days, not only proving that their sin was paid for, but also guaranteeing their place in what we saw last week, this first resurrection, and guaranteeing that they will not face the second death 
Remember verse 6, what is the blessing? He said, blessed, verse 6, holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no authority, and they will be priests of God in Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Those whose names are not in the book of life in turn face judgment. This is the idea over and over again. Lake of fire is not original to this. Jesus uses the same terminology over and over again. It's both something that is tormenting, that is terrible, that is indicated as something that is everlasting. Think of this idea of fire that burns in the Gospels. Jesus uses the the term Gehenna, referencing a place in Israel, the Valley of Hinnom, that burned it was a place actually in, in ancient Israel where they sacrificed to the god of Molech. But Josiah turned it into a trash dump. And the picture that Jesus uses of a, a place where the fire never ceases and where the worm never dies. It's just simply a scary, horrific visual picture that if you had a place where the worms could never consume the host, as it were, Go on and on and on. That's the idea. The worm never dies. The trash keeps going. And they would have that visual picture. And even for you, of us today, you have a visual picture of those things. Again, that describes the eternality of the punishments. But on the good side, death and Hades, verse 14, are thrown in there as well. And there is no more death. The grave is no longer needed. And there's no temporary place as we await. Because even we believe as believers, I believe we go to be the presence with the Lord. But we still await our resurrection bodies. But there's no way in which in the future there is going to be a fall of humanity or anything of that nature. And we will be with the Lord forever. Those who are part of the first resurrection, if you are in Christ, we have that promise, that blessing that the second death has no authority. Well, you think about how serious this reality is and how this should be the kind of passage that we really evaluate our own hearts and our own lives and take inventory. Even just, I'd say, becoming more serious about life and ministry, evangelism, because this is what is at stake. This is kind of where it all is going to find its ultimate head and where everything is headed. And you can kind of get serious about life when you understand these realities of life and death and eternity. But I can't help but think of one of the other verses that I'd say is, if this isn't one of the scariest passages, then I can't imagine anything more terrifying than in Matthew 7. Because the reality is there are those who are even perhaps self-deceived. Perhaps those who have heard the gospel have been in the church. And Jesus even says, this is kind of the end of the Sermon on the Mount... This reality, and of course he's talking to a Jewish audience, and they might think that they are saved because of their, their culture, or that I'm Jewish in, in nature or genetics. Maybe they think I'm saved because I'm descended from Abraham, or saved because of who my parents are. That isn't what saves you. And so there will be, at that point, this judgment that Christ alludes to, that in that day, that's the day of the Lord, in this final judgment, verse 21... That not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. And just as mind-blowing as to me that there is a number that gather like the sand of the seashore to go against war against 
Christ reigning from Jerusalem on the earth. It's mind-blowing. Likewise, this is mind-blowing in verse 22, that there are many, not some, not a few, but many, will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy. And in your name cast out demons, and in your name do many miracles. Which, of course, they don't have the category here of, uh, say, New Testament ministry in the church or pastoral ministry, but it's the idea that people are doing ministry in the name of Yahweh. They're doing miraculous things, such as cast out demons, miracles. And despite that, verse 23, Jesus, who is the one who is given the judgment here, God gives him the ability to judge, I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And there's a whole context of this in the Sermon on the Mount, of which he keeps going after those who live inconsistently, especially um, thinking of the, the Jewish and the religious leaders that professed one thing and believed and thought and were motivated for other reasons. That is to say, they want to appear outwardly righteous, but he knows internally they're not doing it with the right motivation. There's not the kind of perfection or wholeness that is required. Well, I think there's a truth where you can read a passage like that and understand that apart from Christ is true of every single one of us. Because there's nothing we're going to be able to do that is ever going to save us. God's work clearly teaches that God is righteous and he's righteous to punish sin. The question is, think of that courtroom setting. Have we had our sin dealt with? Not only that, but have we received the righteousness of God in turn? Has Christ provided for us? You go back to the beginning of the garden and that inclination to run and to hide and to cover. And you go from the very beginning, this is a picture of we need something to be covered in. And over and over again, the point is from the sacrificial system of the blood of a lamb that covers to seeing that that is a picture of Christ's blood covering us is there that we can have that covered and no longer be Ashamed. It's the only way to avoid the second death that is mentioned here. And when you believe this, this is the promise that your sins are forgiven. When you believe the good news of the gospel, what Christ has done, and there is this blessing and this promise that you will spend eternity with him in, in heaven. And so it's worth asking that kind of question this morning and evaluating, is there any self-deception in your heart? Because it happens within the church is there any Matthew 7 issues to be dealt with? And it's, it's not to create fear or make someone feel bad. It's just to say, be honest. Take inventory. Ask the question, will you, where will you spend eternity and why? Think of the evangelism explosion question. If you were to stand before the throne of God and he asked, why would it let you in? What would you say? And it's not going to be a good enough answer to say I was a good person or I did these things because we can never do enough. It has to be based on what someone else and only the perfect, the worthy lamb that we can trust in. So then the question, when, where will you spend eternity? On heaven in the presence of Jesus Christ or the description here, the lake of fire, eternally separated from God in all of his goodness. My prayer is that you would understand what it is to know Christ and that he would cover you and you would repent and turn to him. Let's pray. Father, even now as we come to the table and, and are reminded of that covering, as we sing together 
behold the lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross. Well, we know what these elements represent. What Christ has done for us. That he took our iniquities. That he bore our sin. He bore our, our shame. Lord, as we partake together as your holy church, that it would even take on a greater reality in light of thinking through the first resurrection, the second resurrection, the first death, and the second death. And that we might have comfort as it has been said that those who have been born twice will only experience one death. And those who have not been born again and only been, as it were, born once. Lord, if you're not born again, then there is a second death that awaits. And so may we not only take this in a way in which we are sober by the reality of judgment and sin and death and hell, but also in a way of celebration, rejoicing in what Christ has done, because we are not worthy. We do not seek fairness. We seek mercy. For we know what we deserve apart from Christ, and yet we also know the grace, the gift that you have given in Christ, that we might not receive the very punishment that we deserve, and that we can be his and worship him and be the very creation that you intended us to be from the beginning. As we look now at what Christ has done and sing together, we just ask this in your son's name. Amen.